Hey y'all, this is Mel Offlerbach and you're listening to Green Juice and Tequila. Green Juice and Tequila represents the earthy, organic, natural vibes colliding with raw, imperfect, and unfiltered stories. Some of us can have it all together, y'all. Eating the latest health nut craze, drink our green juice, meditate every morning. But we also have a side that's vulnerable, real, and sometimes stressed. Life throws you curveballs, y'all, and that's okay. You can be both, green juice and tequila. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining in on another episode of Green Juice and Tequila. My name is Mel Offlerbach, and I'm your host today, and I'm so excited to have one of my dear friends um, and beautiful yoga teacher. Just wait till I introduce her um, and you guys get to listen to her story. But my dear friend, Angel, who's from LA and is an LA-based yoga teacher. She's also a resilience trainer, which we'll learn a little bit more about what that is. But um, thanks, Angel, for joining in on our little podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited that it worked figured it out. Oh my gosh, you guys, if you could have seen behind the scenes on <laughs> trying to get this episode up and going, I think you guys would all have giggled. We um, were in the middle of a pandemic, the coronavirus, which is causing, We Angel and I both came up to the conclusion that it's causing a lot of like issues with the internet connection and Wi-Fi because yes. everybody and their mother's on it. Everyone has to work from home. Yes. We were having a hell of a time trying to get this recorded. <laughs> you guys can see how ghetto uh, <laughs> set funny. up this recording is. Everybody would laugh. <laughs> but um, I actually get, I'm still seeing Angel's face. I have her propped up on my iPhone, you guys, on FaceTime. And she is literally pressed up against my microphone so we can hear her <laughs> so perfectly. We and I can figured see it face. out. We figured it out. Yes. So Angel, like I said before, she's an LA-based yoga teacher, a resilience trainer. Um, Angel and I have gone way back. I think we've been friends, what, for eight years now? Oh, gosh. Yeah, 2012. Yeah. So we taught yoga together and um, just developed a really beautiful friendship. And I'm so grateful for her to be on this podcast and for you guys to listen to her extremely powerful story. But um Angel, why don't you go ahead and just kind of give us a background of you and what brought you to LA and what brought you to Austin, and we'll just kind of take it from there. Okay. Um, I'm just going to start square one, because that's usually where I have to track back to anyways. So I was born in China, and I was raised in Japan, and I actually grew up in a cult called the Children of God. So I was raised in English-speaking communes throughout Japan, which is why I speak good English. And then when I was 19, I wanted to um, move to a different country, but I didn't want to have to learn a different language because I was lazy because I was 19. So I was like, all right, let me either move to a commune in the U.S. or a commune in the U.K. And I ended up picking a commune here in California. And so I moved out here. And actually ended up leaving the cult in the end of 2008 and then um, worked for a little while as a nanny and then became a yoga teacher and then moved to Austin, which is where we met, and worked as a yoga teacher there for a little while. I ended up going through a divorce when I was in Austin and 
at that point in my life, I realized that my career was really mobile. Like I could pick anywhere in the world. And I thought about, okay, where in the world would I like to go? And I was just like, you know what? I loved California. And I had never um, done LA before. I'd never, I visited like twice, but I was like, you know what? I want to try, I want to try like a crazy adventure with my life. Cause it had already been so crazy up until that point. And I was like, you know what? If my life is in my hands, I want to try this. So I threw all my stuff in a car, drove out to California. And that is how I ended up back here. I was so sad when you left too. Yeah. Like, oh, it was oh, a bummer. It was very bittersweet though. We all, we all <laughs> loved you here so much. We still do. So I'm really looking forward to, I know you and I have over the years have talked about um, your upbringing in the cult, Um, but for just our listeners, just to kind of explain a little bit more, uh, again, you know, name the cult, what the cult was kind of all about, and just Mm -hmm. your experience maybe um, when this all kind of first came to flourish and when you realized, oh my gosh, I need to get the heck out of here. Okay. Um, so the name of the cult was called the children of God and they were apocalyptical, which meant that we were waiting for the end of the world. And the person who started the cult was, um, had failed at a military career. So he wanted to have this cult as his like personal end time, like end of days army. So I was raised with a, like a very militant style and I was raised to be a soldier for the Lord. So I grew up under super, super strict rules. Um, Christian, there was like a little bit of Christianity in there, but mostly just oppression and kind of a very abusive cult, as cults do, (laughs) as they are, um, across all fronts. And so that was the environment I grew up in. And so coming out of it, I actually went, like I said, I left in 2008, but it wasn't my choice to leave. I had a boyfriend at the time. And he wanted to go to college and you were not allowed to get any sort of education when you were in this cult past high school. So you could actually study like two subjects, two, three subjects. But then when, when you got to high school, they, they told you to stop your schooling. So in order for him to go to college, he had to leave and he asked me to go with him. And so I did. And then we got married. Um, and about, it took me about two to three years to realize that I had been in a cult because initially when you leave, because it wasn't my choice and because I, the choice that I made was to stay with a boy that I loved. So I didn't want to acknowledge that like my, my family was wrong. My friends were wrong. Everything I knew was wrong. And so that was a very slow trickling realization over the course of a few years. And then when it hit, it it felt super, super overwhelming because then you look back and you're like, wow, almost everything that I was taught is incorrect. Or even if it is correct, the lens under which I view it is incorrect. So you have to rehaul your entire like mental structure. And the realization of that, um, I'm glad was slow because I think if it happened all at once, it would have been really devastating. But it was gradual enough that I was able to kind of pick one thing at a time to fix. And eventually I had to build myself a completely different like mental framework. So right, uh, that was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine, but, especially being yeah. someone in your young twenties, making that mm-hmm. choice to transition away from something that you've only known your entire life. 
What yeah. was um, the children of God's? What are some of their like rules and just kind of the vibe of the environment that you grew up in? Um, I'll just give you a typical day. So we would wake up at like 7 a.m. and right away have breakfast and then devotions. Sometimes it would be switched, but those would be the first two items of the day would be uh, 90 minutes of devotions and breakfast. And 90 minutes of devotions, the cult would make their own material. So it wasn't that you were reading the Bible. It's that you were reading whatever the cult was putting out. So 90 minutes of that. And then after that, you would have half an hour of prayer. So you would have two hours of word and prayer, which was basically, you know, daily conditioning. And then it was whatever the day, whatever they had scheduled you for that day. So for me, when I was a teenager, um, I was in charge of watching my brothers and sisters, or I was in charge of cleaning the house um, or making lunch. And then after that, there would be a break in the day for what they called get out, which meant get out of the house, which I wish we could do now, but we can't. Um, (laughs) But it was about two to three hours for exercise. And it was so long just because they didn't know what else to do with us because we were waiting for the end of the world. But um, we would have about two or three hours to exercise. And then after that, we would have the afternoon, which would be, again, either I would be cleaning or I would be cooking dinner or I would be watching my brothers and sisters. And then after dinner, um, it was either more conditioning or just kind of hangout time where you could, um, there wasn't really much you could do though. So it would be like, again, playing with my brothers and sisters or more reading of like cult literature because you're not allowed to read any sort of outside material. So they, it was a really controlled environment. Um, and then there was a really hard like curfew for bedtime and then you would do it all over again because um, each day when you would wake up, they would remind you that today might be the day that Jesus comes back. Like today might be the end of your life. So your brain just doesn't develop the ability to see past it. So I could never... Um, plan for a future because I knew my future would be death. So up until very recently, probably like four or five years ago, I couldn't see past like a month or two. My brain just didn't have the capacity to see time. So it was that sort of environment. And then also the adults were incredibly militant as well. Some of them were, some of them were nice because, you know, if you're a nice person, In a cult, you're also a nice person out of the cult. And if you're a bad person outside, you'll also be a bad person inside. But it was a very militant environment. And they could also um, punish you at will, whether it was like physical or or mental or emotional or or whatever it is. So there was a lot of that mostly when I was younger. Um, And then a little bit less because the communes that I was in, I started out in really big communes of like 100 people. And then it dwindled down to like 30, 40 people. So, um, yeah, so it became a little less restrictive as the communes got smaller, but it was still a very controlled environment every single day. So, like, I know that some of us, our experience with understanding cult history, for instance, like, I don't know, my brain always goes to like the Mormons back in the day where they had like multiple wives and, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 children or 30 children between this one man and his four wives. Like, was that something that the children of God kind of adapted as well? Or what was kind of the family dynamic like? So the family dynamic was that what they told us is that 
Um, so the children of God, later their name changed to the family. That's their name currently is the Family International. And their whole premise was that we're all God's family. So the family unit doesn't matter. So like mom, dad and kids don't matter. It's that we're all part of God's family. So they would actually assign. Um, I have friends who, for example, both of their parents were leaders. So they took the kids from them and just gave them to another family. And they were like, oh, these are your kids now because we're all part of one family. Um, and my family, I have eight biological brothers and sisters, and I also have a stepsister and a half brother and my family was small. So there were other families that were much, much bigger. I know families of like 14 biological and then like 26, if you include stepkids or half brothers and sisters. So it gets really crazy. Um, and then you also end up with no, um, proper guiding roles, you know, like developing as a kid, I think you need people that you can count on and look up to and who you know you can go to either for care or for reassurance or wisdom or whatever it is and all of those roles were removed and it was just kind of it's a free-for-all when you're like from when you're like four years old so definitely not a healthy family dynamic yeah well it's probably extremely confusing too and just very much so yeah human beings we thrive off of like the mother nurturer and mm-hmm. you know the father protector and so it's yeah. it was I'm, cons- I'm assuming it's probably something that was really confusing coming out of it and having an understanding mm-hmm. of what those relationships and connections felt like yeah and I remember um I had just moved to Austin so this was right as I was realizing that um, I had been in a cult and right as I was realizing that there was another way to exist in the world. And it was at the Corpower Monarch in Austin. It's this beautiful studio. And it was just opening. And this one girl, a fellow teacher there, she came in and I was in the studio. And I was like, hey, what are you doing? And she was like, I'm just taking my dad through the studio. I wanted to show him where I worked. And I was like, okay. So she walked him through and he was like walking around like all wide-eyed and he was like oh this is such a beautiful place uh and he was like I'm really proud of you like let's let's go grab you like a celebratory dinner and they walked out and I just remember being like what was that like what is that relationship like I was really confused and I was like is that like is that what a father-daughter relationship is supposed to be like and in my head I was like that's a that's a small win like it's a yoga studio job I didn't think it was worth celebrating but she had this this person in her life who told her like, Hey, good job. I'm proud of you. Let's celebrate this win. And I just remember being really confused by that. Um, because I had never seen a healthy, like father daughter relationship or any sort of, um, healthy relationship where people would actually be really happy for you and want to see you thrive. Um, and I just remember that moment because it was the first time I was like, wait a second, like I've never seen that dynamic before. Like, what was that? So what was like, what was your relationship like then within the cult with your maternal father? Um, at that point we were still speaking because I think there's this moment. And I think that a lot of kids who come from a tough background feel this where you, you want to keep the bond because if you don't have that bond any longer then it just, if you sever a familial bond, it's not replaceable. So I think that we try and hold on to it for as long as we can. And at that point, I still thought it was repairable. Um, and then within like a year or so, I was able, I realized that I was like, oh, this is actually something that's not fixable. 
and this is not a me problem and this is not a bond problem this is much larger than I can comprehend and the healthiest thing for me to do would is to let it go but at that moment in time I was still once I saw that I was like oh that's what it's supposed to be like so then I tried to cultivate that with him and then that's when it became clear later that that was just not a possibility so then you have two options you have you can fight for it and you'll have to fight for the rest of your life and it'll never be what you want or you can grieve it and let it go. So, yeah, I love that. I mean, I feel like, you know, so many people can can relate to that, whether they were in a cult situation or just mm-hmm. had an unhealthy relationship with their parents, yeah. you know, it's just, and, yeah, something and that, that was, that was, um, super helpful for me because I thought that I was going through all these things because there was something so wrong with me. And it was like, all these struggles were exclusive to me. And what I realized is like, no, this is just a human experience. Yeah. And like, everybody will be able to resonate with the human experience. Yes. I love that. Um, what were kind of, what were some of the shadow dark sides of being in the cult? If you feel comfortable sharing some of those things. <laughs> the whole thing. I know. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the easiest thing I can say is just I was talking to my my first therapist, which was this wonderful woman in Austin, and I was trying to explain to her about the abuse and the reason why I had resisted getting a therapist for so long is I was like, oh my god, there's just too much to explain, and I'm like damaged beyond beyond repair, but at some point I found her and I was explaining this to her. And once I finished, she was just silent. And then she was like, wow, they got you on all fronts. And I was like, what does that mean? And she was like, well, there's certain things that as a human being you need to develop. And it's like, you need to develop physically. You need to develop emotionally. You need to develop sexually. You need to develop um, spiritually, mentally. There are all these things. And she was like, and they abused you across all of them. And that was obviously super tough to hear because, like, I knew that subconsciously. Like, I obviously I recall the abuse, the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, the mental abuse, the emotional abuse. I recall that. But at that time, I thought that I had deserved all of it. So hearing that, like, um, kind of I was attacked and oppressed on all those fronts was, I mean, it's devastating to hear because then you have, again, you're faced with the choice of, do I acknowledge this and grieve it? Or do I just be like, no, I'm fine. And at that point I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I have to grieve, um, for all of these things. But then once you go through the grieving period, it does allow you to then start to be like, okay, now how do I heal all of these things? So yeah, there's definitely a big shadow side to it, but coming out of it and then now being the person I am, it does make like each day so much sweeter because I know what I've overcome in order to be this person and to develop all those parts of me. So it's one of those things that's, it's just very bittersweet. So I love that, honey. Um, I'm, you know, there's like, I have so many questions on my head as we start to get <laughs> deeper into this. Cause I'm like, how in the world did this man, create this cult like on what lines of influence did he have did he think that you know the dynamics that you guys would have between individuals and family members on these sexual levels on these emotional levels 
Mm-hmm. Like where would, maybe you don't know the answer to this. I mean, where did, did this man who created this cult, where, mm-hmm. what was his influence for this? Like what was his, like his drive to be like, yes, like we're going to, you know, have this sexual orgy situation and it's going to yeah. happen and it's because God told us to do this or, yeah. you know, we're going to read this particular book because mm-hmm. God told us to do that. Like what was, yeah. I just want to have a better understanding of what the heck he was thinking. So there's this very, I've done a lot of research (laughs) about like sociopaths and psychopaths and narcissists. And there's a pattern that um, your brain kind of follows in order to get you to like maximum crazy. And there's always some sort of abuse in childhood, which he did have. Um, and he talks about it in the literature, but he talks about it in a good way. He's like, Oh, I was sexually abused and I have my, I recall my nanny sexually abusing me as a young boy, but I loved it, you know? So in his head, it's a good thing. Um, And then he tried to be in the military and it didn't work. And after, and then he also had like a really weird relationship with his mother and he hated his father. Um, And I think he just felt useless. And um, I think with any, like with Ted Bundy or with all these like crazy people, they all have that same background. And so I think that the sixties was just the time where everyone was like, everyone was, I guess, letting their demons loose. And this one just turned out really, really ugly. Um, and they always say that when men start cults, it's for sex. And when women start cults, it's for power. And, he started out with the power piece. He started out with, you know, whoever joins, we need to, we need, you know, here's this super rigid set of rules. And I think that in the sixties with a bunch of like young kids and young teenagers, they were searching and he started the cult in 1969. So it was the end of the sixties. And I think at that point people had been, um, free for a certain amount of time. And then, you know, you want to start swinging the other way towards, um, a little bit more structure and then boom, he's on the scene with this like rigid structure and with, with the message of, Hey, we're also doing this for God. So you hit the familiarity of God that you trust. And then you also hit the structure that you're craving. So you end up joining this thing and then it just slowly starts to degenerate because I think that when you're a psychopath, you start to push the envelope, you start to see what you can get away with. But when you've put yourself in this like authoritative position, no one is going to challenge you. So you can just push the envelope slowly but surely until you hit like full crazy, which he definitely hit. Um, his philosophy started out really rigid and then he ended up being really rigid with the crazy as well. Like you have to beat your children. You have to hate gay people. You have to be racist. Um, and also like children love being involved with whatever sex that you're doing. So be sure to involve the children and things like that. Um, and I'm super thankful that I was born when I, when I was, because the, the older you were as a child in the cult, the worse the abuse was. And I kind of caught the tail end of it. And I'm super thankful that like the generation under me only caught physical abuse, which is like a really low bar, Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, <laughs> at this point, it's one that, you know, I'm really glad that they cleared the sexual abuse aspect and I'm like, Oh, you only got physical abuse. Like that's fine. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, you only got neglect. You're fine. You know, but it's like, it's a low bar, but the abuses did lessen 
as um, basically what happened is that the authorities started to get wind of this cult and they started raiding the communes and taking the kids away, like basically CPS would get involved. And then, so then they had to start putting in writing, like, hey, we're not on board with you beating your kids. And like, no, you shouldn't have, you know, sexual relations with anybody under 18. And this was all stuff that they had to put in writing and they didn't necessarily practice it. But then since once they found out that like, oh, people can actually find us or people can actually throw us in jail, that's when they started to behave like a normal person should a little bit more but there was definitely a period where it was like really really bad and that was the generation before me so do you recall like any like I remember you know you and I were chatting one time about a particular story or something where you were young and you're like you know I don't want to participate in this situation and they didn't force you to participate but they basically like had to pray over you and oh like, my you, gosh I know yes I was like I I mean if you feel comfortable sharing that story I just well that one for me is really funny <laughs> and I don't like not that I should be laughing about it but I thought it was really funny uh because I won that battle so for me it's funny but it might be triggering for some people <laughs> um but basically how old was I I was young I was like 19 and at that time how you would bond with new people who came into the commune was sex. And you were generally not allowed to say no to anybody who asked you for sex. And so the way that I would try and skirt around that is I would befriend everyone and be super friendly and then be like, Oh my God, you're just like my brother. I like you so much. Like we're friends. Cause like, I'm like your sister and you're like my brother. So that's like, that's the relationship we have, isn't it? Um, but you were also, uh, husbands, like marriage didn't matter at all. And what they used to do actually is if, um, people didn't get along, um, they would make the couples or the singles or whoever it was have sex with the spouse just so that you guys would be forced to engage in conversation. So if there were two couples that hated each other, they would make the husband and the wives like swap so that they would be forced into a conversation. Oh my so God, it was really, that is I know. so crazy. And I don't know why it didn't work. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why either. Maybe that's just freaking crazy. <laughs> but there was this new couple in the home. They had just joined the commune. And this guy, I really did not like. He was such a sleazebag. He's one of those people that just, we would wear those, those T-shirts like Bikini Patrol or like, your boobs look heavy, let me hold them for you. He was that person. Oh, gross. Um, and his wife was pregnant at the time with her third kid when they joined our commune. And he went and he asked every single woman in the home married or not, he asked them to have sex with him. And at that time, we we called it a date. Because, of course, in the cult, you didn't date. So dating was sex. So he went and he asked every single woman for a date. Um, and he asked me, and I had this one other friend in the, in the commune. And she and I, like, he made our skin crawl. And we were very vocal with each other about our dislike of him. So I knew that he asked her as well. And so we got together and we were just like, we refuse to have sex with him. And I was like, you hold out and I'll hold out. But like, this is something we absolutely will not do. And at that time, what you were supposed to do, the protocol for when somebody asked you for a date or for sex is that you would have to go pray about it and you would have to hear, like, try and get in touch with Jesus and see what he had to say. 
And then you would go back. And if Jesus said yes to both of you, then you guys would have sex. Um, so I went to Jesus and I prayed about it. And I remember I was like typing out my prayer and I was like, Jesus, even if you say yes, I'm going to say no, because like oh Jesus, God. you're, you're, you're right generally for a lot of things, but in this, like, absolutely not. And so the prophecy that I got from Jesus that day is he was like, don't worry if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. And I was like, thanks Jesus. <laughs> um, so then later on, like a week later, we were having this like dress up dance night in the commune, which is a whole other thing. And this, this guy came up to me and this husband who had asked me and he was like, Hey, did you pray about it? What did Jesus say? And I was like, yeah, I did pray about it. Jesus said no. And he like grabbed me by both shoulders and like pushed me away from him. And he was like, what do you mean? Jesus said no. And I was like, well, I asked the Lord and he said that like, I'm just, I'm not mature enough and that I shouldn't do it. And he was like, I don't believe you. Let me see. Let me see the prophecy. Let me see the prayer that you got. And I was like, no, it's mine. Like, that's from Jesus to me. I'm not going to let you read it. And he was like, well, then you're lying. And like, you do have to have sex with me because Jesus would never say no to me. And he like stormed off. And I was super afraid because I was like, he might go to the leader of the commune and the leader of the commune might come to me and be like, Angel, you're out of line. Like, stop being so selfish with your body. You have to have sex with him. So I was really terrified. So I went to my girlfriend um, and we were like, what should we do? What should we do? Because like, we, we both really don't want to have sex with him. So we went to one of the leaders in the commune because there was always a group of leaders. So we went to one of the women who was pregnant at the time with a little girl. And so we played that card. We went to her and we were like, we both really don't want to have sex with him. He's getting really aggressive with us. And like, you know, and we just feel like, we don't want to do it. And like, what should we do? Please help us. And so she was like, this woman was also like nine months pregnant. And so she felt really badly and she was like, okay, that shouldn't be happening. So like you guys, you both definitely don't need to have sex with him. And we're going to talk to them about it. So what ended up happening was him and his wife had to get united prayer against them for his like lustful desires and, we just had a moment where the entire commune got together and they had to get in the middle and like pray against their selfishness. And I was like, I felt really happy to be there praying against them, which like now that I think about it, of course the whole thing is just a really like screwed up situation. But in that moment I was like, Oh my God, like thank God that I got out of that one. So that's, that's, like, that's seriously, <laughs> that is just like, it's just so mind blowing that um, that someone would create these rules and rituals mm-hmm. of human connection and family connection. Like, yeah. So, how old? How like what was the youngest age? You know that they were required to start. You know, participating and having sex. Um. So, like I said, the generation above me got it really bad, and there are. Um, he had, the leader of the call actually demanded that they send him videos of like these young girls dancing. Um, so really young girls, like five or six, um, which is like really disturbing, obviously. Um, and then also, I mean, they did it to the males as well. And that is something that I try to remember and be compassionate about is like as terrible as the men in the commune were, they also have abuse backgrounds. Um, and you, you can't know better until you know better. So everyone is just doing the best they can. But it was definitely the generation above me 
got it from a very young age. Um, and I, I got a little bit at a young age as well. Um, but then it stopped after that, which I'm super thankful for because some people got it throughout the course of their development, but I'm super thankful that my abuse happened early before puberty. And then, so my, um, my sex drive and my sex life after puberty has been autonomous, which I think is really, really important and is something that I definitely consider a blessing. And I never thought that, again, that the bar would be that low, but I'm really glad that I clear it. Yeah. Oh my, well, that's pretty incredible. For, and I know you and I've talked about this before, like you've mm-hmm. gone through, you know, so much, a, a lot of different therapy um, perspectives mm-hmm. and different quality and types of therapy to really help you navigate your emotions and feelings on all of this to have, I mean, I feel like you're one of the most grounding human beings I've ever met. So, and I know you've done a lot of work, you know, Mm -hmm. to get to that point and to be able to even, you know, share your story and Mm -hmm. feel confident and feel completely grounded in sharing some of these experiences. And for sure, I think it's just, you know, so important that people hear this because Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there might be other people listening who are still stuck in some sort of cult, whether yeah. and they don't know how to get out or they don't know what the first steps moving forward is. Like, what would you yeah. say to those listeners who might be struggling with something similar? So the, the way that it worked for me, because I think especially when you're first starting out, your brain is my brain was like very rudimentary. And for me, I just had to leave the situation. So when we decided to leave the commune, I was like, we just have to leave. We just physically have to exit because if I stay and I talk to people and it just, you know, you can be talked in or out of anything. So I was like, I have to physically leave. So um, we physically left. And then later on when I was um, getting divorced and deciding to leave my husband, I had to do the same thing. I told him like why I was leaving, why, um, the marriage was dissolving. This was my reason. This was my why. And then I just had to leave. I had to leave the house and then be like, I'm not going to come back. Um, because I think you just need to be in a different state or a different environment. And then again, when I was thinking about like, what do I want my life to look like? Where do I want my career to go? And I thought, um, where should I be? And I was like, Oh, California. And I was like, all right, now if I spend time like sitting and planning it, I know I'll never, like, there's always going to be something. So I was like, I just, like, literally need to put all my stuff in the car and just leave and just go. Because I know that I'm, I can adapt to whatever situation that I'm in. And I knew that about myself. I know that I'm very resilient and I have the ability to start over again no matter where I am. And I think that if you know that you have the ability to survive, then you do become more adventurous or just more able to do things. So I think... Um, reminding people that they have the ability to survive anywhere and that people have done it so many times. Like even back to like immigrant parents, like they literally came over on a boat with whatever they had on and they figured it out. So like, don't sell yourself short and don't listen to the people who tell you that you don't have the capacity to do better. Like you can walk out of whatever situation and you have the capacity to build yourself a completely different life than the one that you're in. And that's always true. I love that. And so when you did leave the cult, did you actually have to vocalize to the cult? Like I am leaving, I am no, no longer part of this. Like were there, were there repercussions from that? Did they like come after you? Were they angry? No, 
though I'm super thankful that our cult being so fearful, um, they never came after you. They were just like, if you want to leave, just please go like right away. Cause now we might have to move the whole commune. Cause you might go tell Satan where we are and then Satan's going to find us. So they are too cowardly to fight back pretty much. So that was nice to know that nobody would go after you. And at the time that we left, it was just um, being ostracized. So it was just that you were no longer allowed to have contact or it was much less contact. It was very reduced. And also, I think the heaviest burden was just that all your friends and family and everyone that you knew would now see you as an enemy because that was the differentiator. It's either you were a member of the cult or you were an enemy. So it's just having to tell you know, my mom and dad, my brothers and sisters, and knowing that now they would start to view me as an active enemy and somebody that was attacking them instead of somebody who loved them. That was the hardest part for sure. But, and and so now your mom has actually left and you have a couple mm-hmm. siblings who have also left. Everyone has left except for, except for my dad. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, everyone, as of like very recently, I think as of the last two years, finally, everyone is out. So that is super lovely and something that I am so, so thankful for. Oh my gosh. I'm so, so happy. Really good accomplishment. (laughs) I remember you told us one time, right when you had left, you're like, I don't have a social security or a birth certificate mm-hmm. and like you wanted to travel and needed a passport. Like, Oh my gosh. How did you jump well, through those hoops? So I did have very luckily, my dad is a U.S. citizen. So when I was born overseas, he went to the consulate. So I did have an American passport. But then when I came over here and went to the social security office, they were like, you don't exist. And I was like, no, look, here's my passport. And they were like, how did you get this? Like, this is a fake. And I was like, no, it's my passport. And they were like, no, we're going to take this. And I was like, don't do that. Like, <laughs> I was like, I need that. That's mine. Um, and then so then uh, they actually held it and they had to communicate with like the embassy and see if this was like standard procedure and all that jazz. But I, when I was at the social security office, she was like, why don't like, where's your birth certificate? I was like, I don't have it. And she was like, well, where's medical records? I was like, I don't have it. And she was like, where, where are schooling records? I was like, yeah, I don't have it. And she was like, she was so frustrated. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you. My parents were hippies. And she just like shook her head and she was just like, ah, hippies. (laughs) And I was like, I, I literally, the only thing that I have for you is my passport. I have nothing else. And she was like gracious enough to be like, okay, like, I mean, I see you exist and I see you have a passport, so I'll give you a social security number. Um, But it was super difficult to get a job and to just start living in the world. Because like I said, like I have no, I have no schooling. So when I first left, my job was as a nanny because I'm really good with kids because I really love kids, especially babies. Um, And I'm really good with them. So um But again, it's like no references, no nothing. So I had to call like random people and be like, hey, can you be a reference? Like one of them was my sister who had left the call a while ago and I used her and then I used like a cousin. But you I think the thing that is really hard for people to wrap their mind around is that you literally know no one in the world. So you cannot call anyone for advice for anything. And 
you don't have any sort of healthy attachments or healthy relationships or healthy structures to look at and be like, oh, let me call so-and-so up. Because when they were starting their business, they did blank, blank, and I admire that. Or let me call so-and-so because, you know, they have a good relationship and I'm having trouble now. And you just, you have no one to call because you know no one. And I think that is the, the biggest thing is that you feel completely alone in the world. Well, I feel like you've just done such a great job adapting yourself back into society. I mean, you got out of this cult, you got yourself set up as a legal, like American citizen, you were able to get work. And, you know, I love that you, I remember you telling me stories, how you like how to teach yourself, like Mm -hmm. the elements from like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> Remember you were telling me that. Yes. that you were like, I had to teach myself science and history and they had no idea. And it was like. Well, I had no idea. And it was like so much fun, but it was at the same time really embarrassing because I'm like, I'm 30 years old. How did I not know what the elements were? Like, I didn't know that there was like a whole table of elements. And I remember I was at a bar in Austin and like the, the elements tables on the side of a building. And I was like, oh, that's cool art. What's that? And the person who was with me was like, really? And then they explained it to me. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And they were just like, how old are you? And I was like, I'm 30, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> really, you have no um, idea. Right. I just have, And there are so many things that I don't know. But again, I can look at it as like, oh, my God, I'm so stupid and so stunted. No. And I can't yeah. believe that. Or I can look at it as like oh my gosh, the world is fascinating and there's so much to discover. And then it's just a matter of like, which viewpoint are you going to look at the world from? Because the world you're in is the same, but how are you, like what lens are you going to look through? I love that. And now girl, you like, look at you now. I'm like, you've been, you've (laughs) teach yoga. You've like, you basically started your own business and you, I did. I mean, you're just, and you're so savvy with, you know, your Instagram and with your website. And I, I definitely want to hear more about this resilience trainer, um, you know, background that you have too, and what that is like, Oh God, girl, I want to know, like, tell me. (laughs) Um, so I started a company called restored labs because I feel like, again, there are all these pieces of yourself that automatically as you go through life, certain parts of yourself will be broken. That's just the nature of life. And it's your responsibility to find a way to like restore everything. Like whether it's like you're restoring your body from a physical injury or you're restoring your joy from like a, a, some sort of event. It's like, there's a way to restore all of the things. So I started this, that company. And I also started resilience training because I was thinking about what people need, like what can I offer to people that is useful? Um, and I think the fact that I've kind of had to rebuild myself so many times, I have a way that I do it. And there are certain things that I know work for me, not that they're work for everybody, but I just wanted to package it up and just find a way to offer it out and be like, life is, life is going to constantly beat you up. That's kind of its job. (laughs) Is it constantly like one thing after the other, it's just going to come at you and it's relentless. So you got to train yourself to be resilient, to like take the punches, roll with it and then stand back up. I love that. And I've done that enough times that I'm like, all right, I want to just offer what I know to other people who are like being punched and being like, why is this happening? And it's like, well, it's happening because that's how life is. So like, let's learn how to like roll and stand back up. I love that. 
Well, girl, so before we kind of transition, um, I always like to play a game on my podcast episodes. Um, (laughs) Like we usually play like 20 questions or, um, and they're just, they're super simple. I'm just going to ask you a question. You just answer it and it's just fun and playful just so people can get to know that other side of you. And Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we're going to play that game. Are you cool with that? I'm ready. Okay, cool. I'm ready. Okay. We're going to be super (laughs) simple. What's your favorite food? Sushi. Sushi. Are you a coffee or tea drinker? Coffee. How do you take your coffee? Um, With soy milk, soy milk creamer from Trader Joe's and a little bit of vanilla and a little bit of cinnamon. Ooh, that sounds like something I would look forward to waking up every morning. Right? Yeah. Um, what, What book are you reading right now? Or if you're reading a book right now? Um, I am listening to the book called The Secrets of Storytelling, and I am reading a book of chess, and it's just a bunch of chess problems, and I'm trying to, like, slowly work myself through each problem and teach myself chess. It's going slowly <laughs> but surely. You're like, now that I'm quarantined for the next yes, amount exactly. of weeks, I've got a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> um, what was... Here, let me reword this question. What was the most embarrassing thing you did on a first date... After leaving the cult, like coming back into society, like going on a real date. Oh my gosh. I think it would just be talking. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think it took me a while to learn that like I shouldn't, um, when I first go out on a date with somebody, because first I was like, well, let me just show them. Let me just tell them everything all at once. That way they can decide whether or not to proceed or not. And like the sooner they find out, the better. So then I would just be, you know, they'd be like, where are you from? And I'm like, well... (laughs) (laughs) And I think that now that I, right, exactly. I'm glad you asked. Um, And now I'm like, oh, that's embarrassing. Like, and now that I understand human interaction better, I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to ease people into the crazy. Oh my gosh. You are so (laughs) funny. You reminds me of like, um, I don't, if y'all follow Angel, like on her Instagram or Facebook stories, when her mom comes to visit, it just, they are so hilarious. The little adventures they go on and she'll make her mom say all these funny things. (laughs) God, your mom's so cute. Oh, she's so funny. She's so cute. Um, okay, are you a mountain girl or an ocean girl? Both. That's why I'm in California. Yeah, girl. That's me too. I, that's why I love going to California. <laughs> you get the both worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, where's your favorite place you've traveled to? Switzerland. Oh, Unquestionably. Really? Because you've traveled yeah. a lot, like all over the yes. place. Yes. And so Cambodia was my favorite country for the longest time. And last year I went to Switzerland and, oh man, I think it's, it's hard to beat. I don't know if any other country will ever be able to replace it, but I'm willing to like find out. <laughs> oh my God. I, that's on my bucket list too. My sister has gone to Switzerland and has just raved about it. So mm. pretty. It's amazing. What's been the most impressionable thing someone has done for you or to you? Something that has made an impression on you that you be like this person or this memory was one of the best I can recall. I think the the biggest switch in mindset, well, not the biggest, but one of the most impactful was when somebody was offering me help and I was refusing it just because for me, I'm like, oh, I know that when people help you, it's because they want something from you. And so I was like, oh, thank you for offering help. But actually, I'm going to refuse. And they were like, Angel, people want to help. 
and people feel useful when they can help you. And I was like, that's incorrect. People help you because they want something. And he was like, no, people want to help. And he was like, think about it. And as you go through life and you have interactions with people, give them space to help you and watch how happy they are that they're able to help. And that was a huge moment, that mm-hmm. switch of understanding that people people are kind and people feel useful when they can help you. I love that. Um, what is your favorite movie? I don't know if I have one. Oh, wait. <gasps> I do. It's a French movie. Ooh. With Vanessa Paradis. It's called Heartbreakers, but... It's the French Heartbreakers because there's the one with Jennifer Love Hewitt and Sigourney Weaver that's also called Heartbreaker. Uh-huh. But there's a French movie called Heartbreaker and it's with Vanessa Paradis and it's incredible. I, oh my, that's definitely my favorite movie. Okay, we'll have to watch that one. What, oh, what's your favorite TV series right now? And I like, if you have to name a couple because we've been quarantined yeah. and binge watching, like feel oh free gosh. to name a couple. So I just binged watch all of Tiger King in the last two days. Um, right now I'm discovering Cheers because I've just not ever watched TV. Um, so I don't know all of these like God, TV Cheers shows. Cheers is so old. <laughs> I know. And I'm, so I'm watching Cheers and I'm like, this is definitely a product of its time. Um, but that's the thing that I have on in the background as I'm like editing or working or whatever. That's what I'm currently going through. Oh my God. I love it. <laughs> um, what's your Zodiac sign? I'm a Gemini. A Gemini. I have so many Gemini women in my life. That's I so great. I love it. I know. I love my Gemini. Like my best friend Evan's Gemini. Yeah. And then my friend Anna, our friend Anna's Gemini. Yeah. My our friend Andrea's Gemini. Mindy's Gemini. Oh my gosh. I know I have a shit ton of freaking Geminis in my life. Wow. I guess Virgo and Geminis do really well together. But I'm a Gemini oh. rising sign. Oh, so okay. I and think. I know my, my rising is something else. I know it's not Gemini. Oh my gosh. Okay. Are you uh so if you're a wine drinker, are you a red, white, or rose wine drinker? So I used to be red. Now I swing more towards white. Yes. And you and I got to participate in a fun little wine tasting last time we were together at Malibu. That's right. And I was able to down six full ounces, (laughs) three glasses of two ounces each. (laughs) That was was such a fun. That was a good day. We went, we guys, we went on this um, wine safari tour in Mm. Malibu and it was like, the most beautiful. It was so beautiful. God, and that sunset, the very end. I look back at those pictures and just smile. That was such... That was a good time. That was so much fun. Um, What's your favorite restaurant? So I just discovered Connie and Ted's, which is right next to me. And it is a seafood restaurant. And they were just about to become my favorite place. And then everything closed. But they are my latest and greatest discovery. Oh my God, I love it. Okay, I always ask this question. Are you green juice or tequila? Green juice. Green juice. Yes. Yay. I'm usually both. <laughs> I mix those two up all the time. Um, girl, I am so grateful that you came on this episode and for you to be yeah. so vulnerable and share this story. You know, you and I have talked about this for mm-hmm. so many years and just having you 
give you a platform to share this. Like I just, yeah, thank you. Oh my gosh. I'm just so grateful. And, um, like what are projects you're working on right now? Like you guys, Angel's an amazing yoga teacher. We didn't have enough time to even go into all of that, I know. but she does, she has pre-recorded amazing mm-hmm. sequencing classes on YouTube. And so just share with us a little bit, like what are the projects you're working on your upcoming things that you want to do? So we would love to be able to like share this with yeah. everybody. So right now, like during the, in the time of coronavirus, I'm teaching online um, and I'm doing it mostly advanced flows. So um, people who have a more advanced practice who don't, um, who don't necessarily need all the beginner cues, I'm, I'm doing a donation based um, program online for yoga. And then I also started this thing on YouTube on the same channel called Cult Storytime. And I do like little daily videos of like a crazy story, um, like a funny funny one. And then, um, yeah, so I'm working on that. And then also, if you go to my website, just angeldesantis.com, you'll find the resilience, like information about the resilience training there. And that's uh, still a new thing, but I'm taking in um, groups, but very small groups, like max eight people. Um, and just kind of finding out like what makes each person tick and how do you absorb information and then kind of catering the resilience course for you just because I want people to know that like how you learn and how you absorb information is good. Just let me know how I can help. And then that is how I will provide the information. So I just love kind of it. Making it. Yeah. Just making it okay for people to exist in whatever capacity they exist in. Exactly. And yeah. y'all, we will post all of Angel's information on the description of this podcast so you can have access to her website. We'll make sure to put links to her YouTube channel um, along with her social media site so you guys can follow her. Um, love your cult stories. I love all your, you. I, I'm like, they're so funny. And I love all your little tidbits of your um, yoga classes that you've been sharing with us too. Um, and again, y'all, I'm just like so pumped and honored to have Angel on this episode. So please support her. Thank you. And listen. Of course. Yeah, Angel. I'm glad we got to do it. Oh my gosh. It only took like multiple hoops <laughs> to jump through to do this from LA and, and Austin. But we managed. We did it. It's, that's like so us too. Like we're like I know. both of those types of women that will it's true. find a way no matter what. There's, exactly. Like no is not an option. No is never an option for me. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to Green Juice and Tequila. I would be so grateful for you to, sub- to subscribe to the channel and to also write a review if you feel compelled to and it resonates with you. And again, thanks you guys so much. Bye y'all. Bye.